This is the Mark Podcast from Lifeway Women. We're your hosts, Elizabeth Heineman and Kelly King. Each episode, we'll talk about what God is doing, how He has and is marking each of us. Sometimes that will be through interviews, and sometimes we'll have conversations around the table. We're so glad you've joined us today. Lifeway Women events are gospel-centered, worship-filled, high-energy experiences for women of all ages. Whether you're in the room or joining us virtually from around the world via simulcast, at Lifeway Women events, you'll dive into the Bible with teachers like Priscilla Shirer, Lisa Turkhurst, Jackie Hill Perry, Lisa Harper, Jen Wilkin, and more. Learn how to study scripture for yourself, laugh with friends, and leave invigorated to follow God's calling in your life. Find a city near you or learn about our digital events at lifeway.com forward slash women's events. Welcome to the Mark Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly King, and I'm here a little bit solo today without my co-host, Elizabeth Heineman. And I know that she is super sad that she could not be with us today because we have one of a one of our guests that we have been looking forward to having for quite a while. So, Rebecca, would you just say hi to everybody and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, your ministry? Sure. My name is Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, Americans say, tend to say McLaughlin, which is what my husband's family say, but I, I did a deal with him when we got married. I said, I'll change my name to yours so long as you start pronouncing it the correct way, which is McLaughlin. <laughs> but, I'm glad you said uh, so, that because I almost said that, I almost asked you beforehand because it does, I mean, it, Americans do kind of use right. the soft, so yes. I have to spell it every time I'm on a, on a call with, um, you know, people in some sort of service industry, but that's fine. Um, yeah, so I, I come from the UK originally, as folks may be able to discern from my accent. And I um, was raised in a, in a church going family, but with a kind of mixed, um, mixed Christian heritage, uh, I, I guess you could say. So I, I never felt like I was just kind of taking my, my parents' faith. Um, I, I felt very sure from at least the age of nine that Jesus was the only person I could truly count on, the only person mm-hmm. who would definitely not just be here today and gone tomorrow. And I think that's something that's kind of stayed with me ever since in, in, in different ways, but it was particularly clear to me then. Um, and, and I was mostly surrounded by people, uh, especially kind of friends and peers who uh, weren't Christians. Um, my husband grew up in, in Oklahoma in a kind of Christian family with mostly Christian or at least sort of church going friends. So he and I have very different backgrounds that way. But from an early age, I was uh, in a position where I was wanting to share my faith in Jesus with um, friends and classmates and expecting them to have actually quite like serious objections to Christianity. So that was something that I um, was engaged in from from basically the first in my Christian life and carried me straight through university. Um, had the privilege of going to Cambridge University, studying English literature there, um, did a PhD in Shakespeare, which was which was really fun and um, oddly, uh, in some sense, relevant, not relevant to what I'm doing today. In another sense, very relevant because Shakespeare's all about communication and, and words and the big questions of of life and, and existence and, and reality. So there are many ways in which I'm still, I think, shaped by that today. 
um, yeah, after my PhD, I, I went to seminary for three years. Uh, I met my now husband, Brian, right at the end of our time, um, my time um, doing my PhD at Cambridge. And he really wanted to move back to the US. So I had never planned to leave England. Um, oh, wow. I, I was honestly sad to leave not only my family and friends, but to leave a relatively gospel poor country for a relatively gospel rich country. Um, but looking back now, I, I see the ways in which the Lord, you know, I think it's so often true in life, isn't it? That you you don't know what the Lord's plan is looking forward. But when you look back over your shoulder, you, you can see the ways that he has um, has worked things. And um, you know, I'm very conscious of the the privileges and opportunities that I've, I've had since moving here. Um, for the first nine years that we were in the States, I worked for a ministry where I was doing a lot of work with Christian professors, actually in, at leading secular universities. I was hearing their stories of faith ha- about how they integrate their faith with their area of research. Um, and after nine years of doing that, I felt like I, I had a, a lot of stories and a lot of um, you know, insights from them that I really wanted to share with other people. So I wrote my first book, um, Confronting Christianity, um, on the basis of that, trying to make those stories and insights available to a, a broader audience. Um, I was pregnant with my third child at the time that I was writing yeah. that book. So we have uh, two girls and a boy and it's been a, a wild ride. Um, and we love we love our local church here. We're deeply kind of embedded in Christian community here and thankful for the, the brothers and sisters that the Lord's given us. Well, and you talked about kind of that gospel poor area, you know, like leaving the UK and then Boston though really there's a lot of skeptics and, and a lot of people that aren't people of faith in the Boston area so in some ways God has kind of put you in a kind of a gospel poor area right yeah no for sure I mean make no mistake Cambridge Massachusetts is not the Bible Belt agree <laughs> agreed um, right. and and we have the opportunity to connect with people actually from all over the world um, you know, many believers, in fact, from all over the world, but also people who um, may have had no, no exposure to Christianity at all. Uh, last Christmas, not this one just passed, but um, in 2021, we went and kind of knocked on doors in our neighbourhood to invite people to church and, and give out the little Christmas book that I'd, um, I'd written that year. And my 10 year old sort of said, you know, are people going to slam the door in our face? And I said, oh, I don't know, let's see. <laughs> like, um, almost nobody yeah. did, actually. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's there's more openness in Boston than yeah. you I think. Well, and it's interesting that you made a comment about you as a young girl realizing that Jesus was kind of a permanent, like you, you realized like he wasn't going to leave. And I, I was actually listening to another podcast yesterday, and the person that was being interviewed is really pretty much a skeptic at this mm-hmm. point in his life. But he... He used to kind of be a churchgoer, kind of had a little bit of faith background. And the person interviewing him said something about, well, what what did appeal to you about Christianity? What was it that, you know, what was it about faith that drew you in at the at beginning? And I thought that was interesting. He said it was the, the permanence. Huh. Yeah. And it was that I, I knew that there was a certainty. And so I thought, wow, that's um, that's something I think we we probably should talk about a little bit more mm-hmm. with people who are skeptics too. Yeah, I mean, the, the the possibility that there might be someone who really deeply, truly knows you and mm-hmm. permanently loves you mm-hmm. is what I mean. It's what we're all seeking in one way or another. And and if if the Christian message is true, then it's what we can have. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Well, and you you have written a lot. I and mean, you mentioned confronting Christianity. You've had you have a lot of books um, out there right now. And you're you just write. You just continue to like that's almost a therapy for you, I feel like. Yeah. But yeah, you've got a, you've got a new Bible study that's coming out with us. So in some ways this is going to be your first Lifeway Women's Bible study, and it's called Navigating Gospel Truth. So we want to take a, a few minutes just to talk about tell us a little bit about the Bible study and you know why, why the study? Yeah, like I said, I, I studied uh, English literature for um, my kind of formal education once upon a time. And um, a, a big piece of what I was interested in was metaphors and, and how Shakespeare in particular uses metaphors. And it struck me when I went to seminary right after that, that the only person who likes metaphors even more than Shakespeare is Jesus. <laughs> um, people often ask, you know, do you take the Bible literally? And by that, they they tend to mean, actually, do you take the Bible seriously? Like, are, mm -hmm. are you serious about the crazy things that the Bible claims? And I would want to say, yes, I, I take the Bible extremely seriously. But often, even especially in, in the Gospels and when we're listening to Jesus' own words, if we take him literally, we will misunderstand. Now, you know, I think of um, John's Gospel where Jesus famously has a series of I am statements. You know, I am the mm -hmm. good shepherd. Mm -hmm. I am the true vine. Um, I am the, the light of the world. All of those statements are profoundly true. None of them are literal. And I think it, it can be, um, it, I think it is important for us as Christians to get used to navigating the different kinds of communication that the Bible is, is speaking to us through. So we don't get tripped up or think that it's like, like there's an on-off switch. You know, Either you take the whole Bible quite literally or you don't. Mm -hmm. In actual fact, we need to read each passage of the scriptures you know, carefully and faithfully and seek to discern, you know, how is this passage communicating truth to me? And, you know, sometimes it's it's through um, a literal statement. Sometimes it's through a metaphor. Sometimes it's through a parable or a story. Sometimes it's through um, uh, something called hyperbole, where the, um, the Bible might be saying, you know, presenting something in very extreme terms that, again, we're not meant to take kind of literally, but it's meant to make a, a really forcible point. So I wrote this study to help people... Um, you know, not only to read the Gospels more carefully, but also hopefully to to be able then to read the rest of the scriptures more carefully as well, having looked at the different kinds of writings we see in the Gospels and how we can kind of clue, clue into, oh, this is how this is how the Lord is speaking to me here. Um, and so that I can understand what he's saying more faithfully. What what kind of genre or maybe category would you say is a little bit of a surprise for people that maybe some a reader thinks oh i didn't realize this is in the gospel yeah i think um that because of the confusion that people have often made between um you know not taking every piece of the bible literally and recognizing that there are metaphors and stories etc um and, and not taking the, the historical truth claims of the Bible seriously, which is sort of a very different thing. I think people are often kind of surprised to hear, oh, no, no, there really are like metaphors and figurative language in, in, in the Gospels. And that doesn't actually undermine, you know, for example, the literal claim of Jesus' resurrection. Those are very kind of separate things. Um, I think in, in particular as well, people can be thrown off by hyperbole, the sort of very extreme, exaggerated language. And I think that the genre that can be most... Um, confusing or perplexing um for, for many of us is the the um kind of apoc apocalyptic writing that we find yeah. in the gospels um when when jesus is talking about uh, the end times in in these 
you know, very dramatic and um, sort of pictorial terms. Um, we, we get a, a taste of that in other scriptures, like, for example, in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament or in the book of Revelation. I'm reading through Revelation right now in my, my own devotional time and in the New Testament and, and trying to kind of understand more of this this kind of writing where honestly there'll be times when we actually don't really understand or, or, or commentators you know disagree about exactly how we should understand a passage there'll be some pieces that you know really we can um work out uh, from reading the old testament attentively and understanding this genre better other pieces that we're going to have to hold some degree of uncertainty actually and that can be that can mm. be unsettling for us as, as christians sometimes yeah, that's really good. I, as you were saying that, it kind of took me back to, this has been many years ago, my high school years. I went to a public high school, and I had a wonderful English teacher who was an amazing believer. And she offered, it was an elective course, um, and she couldn't offer it as like the Bible, but she could offer it as the Bible as literature. Mm-hmm. And that was my first introduction to really looking at at scripture through the lens of metaphors or maybe poetry or just all the different types of things that we see in literature. Mm-hmm. And so what an what an incredible way that we can understand that truth. And and when you think about navigating gospel truth, we live in a culture that truth is is a little bit vague sometimes, right? Or that people kind of get tripped up on. How do we how do we deal with that? How how do we navigate truth in the books that help us navigate the culture with truth? Yeah, I think one thing that's important for us to understand is that if we're reading the gospels and we are not personally feeling very challenged and unsettled by what they're saying, we're probably not paying attention. <laughs> you know, actually, yeah. I mean, I, you sit down and you read something like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it's uh, it's terrifying. Um, it, it, it drives you to your knees. There, there's no way, I think, faithfully to read any of the gospels without being freshly confronted by your own sin and by your own need for a savior. Um, you can read them without that, but you're probably not actually paying real attention um, mm-hmm. if you do. So I think as we think about how the truth of the scriptures then impacts how we see culture, I think the first step is to you know recognize our own inadequacy, our own sinfulness, um, how we can only come to Jesus on our knees, actually. But the, when when we do, he lifts us up. And I think that really helps us with our, our posture, our attitude toward the non-believers mm-hmm. around us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people sometimes say, well, it's so arrogant of Christians to say there's only one way and that Jesus is the only way. I don't think that's arrogant. I think that's it, un- unmistakable from Jesus's claims about himself. But we Christians can often get confused and think that um, the fact that Jesus is the only way and that he is the rightful ruler of the world puts us on some sort of you know, moral high ground from which we can look, look down on, on non-believers around us. And that that's really where we... Um, where we can get get very messed up in, in our in our approach mm. to culture, so I think we need to to hold together the humility to which the um, the gospels kind of draw us that, that they demand of us, and at the same time the the radical, offensive truth claims that they make about Jesus um, to hold both of those things together as we engage with those outside the church. That that's beautifully said. I really do think there is that tension of us not of approaching people in humility 
but also in truth. And so what a, what a great way to even just consider that too. Um, the, the Bible study, you've also developed a teen version as well. And I know that one of your more popular books that I've, I've seen people on social media talk a lot about is the 10 questions every teen should ask about Christianity. So I think you have um, a real love for younger people and, and children. You've also written some things for children, but why is it important for us to, to for teenagers to learn this process as well? I think it's so easy for us to underestimate our kids actually and when I say our kids I, I speak you know as a parent but also I, I think for non-parents all of us are involved or, or should be involved in the the raising of um, believing children in our, in our churches and my my kids in particular who are 12 10 and, and 4 right now benefit tremendously from the investment of some of our, our single friends um, who, who pour into them and um, and give them model for them something that Brian and I can't model for them, which is what it looks like to live as a faithful single person, um, mm-hmm. following Jesus with with all their hearts. Mm-hmm. So I think you know all of us are actually um, none of us kind of have have an excuse for for not um, being involved in, in in raising up uh, children in the Lord. And I and I think it's easy to underestimate um, the capacity of our kids and to communicate to them that actually um, church is a place where they might like eat pizza and have fun with their friends and, you know, sing a few songs, but we're not going to demand too much of them. Um, you know, school, in school, we, we are expecting them to, to really work hard and use their brains, but not really in church. I think church should be the place where where Christian kids are, um, are the most stretched intellectually, actually, and where the most is, is demanded of them. And the reality is that our, our children and especially those who are in, in public schools or, or interacting with non-believers on a regular basis as, my, as my kids are, um, they're going to be confronted with the exact same questions and challenges and issues that any of us adults in the culture are. And, you know, for instance, when it comes to questions of gender and sexuality, if, if we wait until our kids are like maybe 15 or 16 before we start to talk to them about these things, all we've done is let their non-Christian um, peers and, and teachers disciple them. Actually, we haven't <laughs> we haven't preserved you know preserved their innocence or any of the other kind of arguments that we might make for not having those conversations earlier. Um, so, w- with my own children, I you know I talk about these things kind of early and often and um, help them to see how actually Jesus stands at the center of Christian sexual ethics. Jesus stands at the center of our understanding of, of what a man is and what a woman is. Um, Jesus stands at the center of a, a Christian vision for love across racial difference and, and um, justice between people of, of different racial backgrounds. And, and so we can, from the scriptures, diagnose the sin that often our non-Christian um, friends and, and neighbors are pointing to um, in, in, in the church's history. Um, we can look at the scriptures and diagnose that, that sin right there and see how far it is from what Jesus is calling us to. Um, so yeah, in, in all these kind of cultural areas, I think we need to be uh, on the front foot with our children, not oversimplifying things, not pretending everything is is straightforward, but bringing the scriptures to bear um, on the questions that they're facing and doing so with with a real care about truth and love. Mm-hmm. I do think you you've said something that I, I've heard other teachers also talk about is why. Do we expect our, our kids to do calculus and some of the really hard subjects in school, languages? I mean, they learn languages, and yet we dumb down 
the gospel or we dumb down scripture or we don't expect. And I do think sometimes there's also this mentality of we don't need to spoon feed them, like helping them discover things on their own. Right. Yeah. And and it's funny. I have a little bit of a, a, a bee in my bonnet, as we said. Is that an expression here? It's an expression. Oh, yeah. You can use that. Okay. Oh, bee in, in my bonnet. bonnet. Yeah. Um, you know, about, for example, the public reading of scripture that people mm. often stand up in church and they read a Bible passage as if it's the most boring thing they've ever read. Mm. When in fact, it's probably incredibly interesting and exciting. And I think it, when if we uh, approach our children with the scriptures as if like, yeah, this is sort of a boring duty to plod through this this passage today in like family Bible time, um, we, we're doing them a disservice. Instead, we should be um, recognizing how exciting and challenging and um, offensive and difficult and beautiful uh, the scriptures are mm-hmm. and um, sitting I- in that with them so that, that they don't think oh this is just sort of boring stuff I'm forced to do but actually yeah. no these are the words of eternal life mm-hmm. and um, my questions are valid my my objections my reactions emotional or intellectual um, there's space for those in, in conversation and family or in, or in church and um but that we're expecting our kids to like truly engage with the scriptures. And I recently even listened to a professor who was saying, how often do we read scripture or teach scripture and we forget the transformation that happens with scripture? Like we, he said, you should never, you should never read God's word or teach it and not expect God to do something with that. That it's not on our own, but that we, because he's given, this is his word to us. Um, it, it was a challenge to me um, as a teacher to, to think, okay, the next time I look at God's word, that I teach it, I should have an expectation that God is doing something with this. Mm-hmm. Not because of me, but because this is his word. And yeah. to be careful with my own words and speak speak his word, you know. It was, it was a challenge for me. I, you also have a podcast too, Rebecca. Tell us a little bit about your own podcast that you do. Yeah, yeah I was um, I was p- pulled into it, not exactly kicking and screaming, but maybe a little <laughs> tiny bit. Um, there's a, a wonderful podcast called Knowing Faith, which um, yes. folks may be familiar with. Yes. Where, um, Jen Wilkin chats with two um, pastors, Kyle um, Worley and JT English. Mm-hmm. And I am, truth be told, I'm not really a big podcast person. I'm not like an avid podcast listener. I find most podcasts um, somewhat uninteresting. So I've never been like a big co- you know, connoisseur of Christian podcasts. Sure. But I do really like the No Faith podcast. And so um, initially, Kyle asked me, uh, would I start an apologetics podcast kind of under their umbrella? And I said, no. Uh, last, <laughs> thing I, last thing I wanted to do was to, to start a podcast. It seemed like a lot of work. And then about six months later, maybe nine months later, he approached me again. He said, um, would you be interested in starting an apologetics podcast with me? Like we would do it together. I would do, you know, uh, the, the various kind of legworky things that I um, I would be terrible at that, that he would he would do. Um, and I said, oh, OK, yeah, I could I could get on board with that. Um, so what we're, we're trying to do, we just had our, our first season um, last year, working on our second season now is engage with some of the big apologetics questions that people have, you know, both the traditional ones about the validity of scripture and the proof of the resurrection and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And also just the ones that are um, honestly more front and center in many of our non-Christian friends' minds, like questions mm-hmm. around sexuality and race and, and justice and equality. 
Um, and to do that, some episodes, it's just him and me chatting. Other episodes, we're talking with people who have a specific expertise um, or experience that's, that's relevant to the questions. So, yeah, it's been it's actually been really fun. Yeah. What's what's the name of it again? It's- uh, well, <laughs> we initially um, I suggested that we call it Knowing Truth to go with uh-huh. Knowing Faith. Yeah. yeah. Um, Kyle suggested that we call it Confronting Christianity to go with oh. my first book, Confronting Christianity. So and he won. Um, so it's called <laughs> Confronting Christianity. <laughs> Well, that way our listeners can find it easily, too. Yeah. And I thought it was kind of fun that you also, um, you had an article published in the Wall Street Journal on Christmas Day. What was that like? Gosh, I was honestly completely surprised. Um, yeah. I, I got a message through my website uh, about a month before Christmas saying, um, you know, we have a Christmas feature every year in the Wall Street Journal. Would you be willing to write it? Um, I, I Googled the guy's name because I thought this has to, like this is probably a joke. This is the joke. You know, this is like some <laughs> why is the Wall Street Journal asked me to do this? But I looked him up and I was like, oh no, he's like legitimately an editor at the Wall Street Journal. Um so yeah, I had the incredible uh, privilege of writing a piece, um had two thousand words and and I wrote it about um Mary the mother of Jesus's claims about Jesus, uh, you know, claims about the conversation she had, had with the angel and, and prophecies over him um when she was pregnant with him and how they have stood up over the last 2,000 years. Because mm-hmm. when Mary made the claims in the first place, they were crazy, like mm-hmm. from a Jewish perspective and from a Roman perspective, absolutely unbelievable. I think in the last 2,000 years, there's a, there's quite a bit of evidence to point to the fact that they might actually have been correct. So yeah. that was sort of the premise of, of this piece. Yeah, and, and even your book, um Women Through the Eyes of Jesus, right? Did I get that right? Women th- uh, almost. Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. I got it backwards. <laughs> That's right. it, it's not a long book, but it is rich. Um, I've gone through it with a couple people on our team, and I've actually been using it some for some research of just again and again. One of the things that you say in there is that where would we be in the Gospels without the accounts of women? Mm. When you think about Mary, when you think about Mary Magdalene, when you think about the resurrection, when you think about some of the accounts that we have, um, so important that that Jesus included women in that. And uh, I, that's just a great book, another recommendation um, as we as we talk to you and stuff. Um, okay, so you did tell us a little bit about your degree in Shakespeare, and you know. And, and we talked a little bit about the metaphors of Shakespeare, but tell us some other things about how you feel like those two have worked together really well in your life. I was uh, laughing with my best friend, Rachel, a few months ago about the fact that I'm, I'm I said, I'm really not an expert in anything. Like I, I talk about a whole lot of different things and I'm not an expert in anything. And she said, she said, no, 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 you're an expert in two things, rhetoric and love. And I said, oh, well, but only, you know, only one of those things is actually relevant to the work I'm doing. Um, and she was like, no, no, actually the love is relevant too, because um, what I'm trying to, to model and, and encourage is, is people deeply engaging with the hard questions of life and, and with um, challenging conversations with friends, but, but doing so um, with sincere love for them, not just to kind of prove a point or um, knock somebody else down. But the, the, the rhetoric piece, um, it, it, I think, really does come from just years and years and years of, of listening to, um, in my head, I, I'm somebody, I think, very kind of orally. Um, I'm not really a visual person. So 
um, when I'm reading something, I kind of remember the words as they kind of sound in my in my mind. And mm-hmm. when I'm writing, I, I kind of write. Friends often say, oh, it's just like you're talking to me. You know, I'm like they know what it's like when I'm talking to them and it's exactly the same when, when they're reading what I've written. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's kind of the only way I know how to do it is <laughs> to just sort of um, write as I as I would speak. Um, so, yeah, thinking about those two those two pieces, I think it's really um, oh, yeah. my, my background that has shaped me. I think that's a good sign of a writer when you hear when you feel like you're listening to the author's voice. I mean, I can definitely there are different authors that I hear their voice when I'm reading their work. And OK, this may be a question that's like asking you which of your children you like best. But is there a work of Shakespeare that you tend to really, really like love the most? Well, I can answer that uh, within the different genres with okay. Shakespeare's writing <laughs> that's all right um I think Hamlet is my favorite tragedy though Romeo and Juliet is a very close second mm-hmm. um much to do about nothing is my favorite comedy mm-hmm. um and I'll spare you my views on the histories and the <laughs> Roman plays and the late plays but you just let's let's just keep it at that Hamlet yeah, and much to do about nothing that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Rebecca, one of the things we always ask our guests, um, because this is the Marked Podcast, is that we always ask our guests, what is one thing that has marked you in your walk with Christ? Yeah, I've sort of I've contemplated on that. It, it, obviously, there are so many things, but the, the one that came to mind is this. Um, for as long as I can remember, I've been a Christian. And for as long as I can remember, I've been primarily attracted to other women. And so that's something that, you know, growing up as a Christian and sort of navigating my own, um, you know, young adulthood and, and um, thinking through different kinds of relationships that, you know, all of us are kind of figuring out like who we are and how um, how we will find love in this world, um, probably at every stage of our life, but but certainly um, as, as younger people, I I was presented with that reality that, that if I were not following Jesus, I would likely be pursuing romantic relationships with women or with at least a woman. Um, and uh, one of the things that's been deeply redemptive for me in starting to to write books is actually finding that this piece of my experience is something that I can actually use to serve others, um, that it's been a, an opportunity to um, help other, other Christians who, who, like me, are primarily attracted to folks of their same sex. And, and it's also, and I'm, I sort of want to be careful about how I say this, because it's not that you know, all of us will have sinful tendencies in every area of our lives and all of us will have sin- sinful tendencies when it comes to areas of, of, of attraction. And I, I don't for a minute want to, to make it sound like our sinful temptations are good good in and of themselves. They're not. At the same time, I think any any piece of our experience which makes us in any way dissatisfied with our life here and now can point us to our resurrection life with Jesus in the future. And that is something which I, as someone who has experienced an awful lot of, um, at least right now, an awful lot of um, kind of like blessing. I mean, again, I want to be careful how I use that word because Jesus talks about blessing in a very like upside down way than we would Mm -hmm. think. But like there are so many um, good things in my life, so many things that bring me joy and and comfort um, that having things in my life that actually do point me to a a resurrection future uh, uh, there, there's a real there's a real benefit to that when we can see um, how they how these pieces of us can make us dissatisfied with the here and now and point us to our resurrection life with Jesus one day. Mm-hmm. I I really I've heard you speak about that struggle and I think that it's very um, just a 
a vulnerable place to talk about even just the struggles we have, but the hope that we have in Christ, right? And the promises that we have of, of all of that. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for just joining us today, being part of the Mart podcast. And I'm super excited about your new study. And we want to encourage our listeners to, to grab a copy. And even just the videos were filmed in the Boston area and some very, you know, very kind of well-known places and so that'll be fun to for people to watch that as well so thanks again for being part of the mart podcast thanks kelly take care you bet all right listeners we hope that you'll be back with us next week and we'll have someone else for you to listen to thanks again thanks so much for listening if you want to join in on the conversation you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Kelly D. King and at E.D. Heineman. Use the hashtag Marked Podcast to connect with us. You can also find Lifeway Women on all social media channels at Lifeway Women. All of today's show notes will be posted at LifewayWomen.com slash podcast. If you love the show, leave an iTunes review. It's a great way for other people to hear about the podcast. We'll see you next time.